Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that the last Kermode on Film podcast was me counting down my top 10 favourite films of 2020. I know it's been a very tough year for films and for cinema in general, but there were so many great releases, despite the fact that cinemas were closed. There were loads and loads of great films. It was really hard whittling down my top 10. Some of them were released in cinemas, some of them released to streaming. Anyway, you can hear that uh, top 10 list on uh, the previous Kermode on Film podcast. If you haven't already downloaded it please do if you're new to the podcast welcome lovely to have you please subscribe and tell your friends anyway for this Kermit on film podcast as is traditional at this time of year i'm doing my 10 least favorite films of the year so this is the bottom 10 of 2020 So, I'm going to start off by directly contradicting what I just said in the introduction. You know, I've often said that people say that some films are so bad they're brilliant, and it's actually it's not true. Most films that are bad are just bad. But every now and then, a genuinely bad film comes along that I really, really, really enjoy watching. And at number 10 in my bottom 10 films of the year, released in the UK in 2020... The Extraordinary Skyfire, starring the one and only Hello to Jason Isaacs. Now, Skyfire is a really remarkable film. It's basically a disaster movie, and I love disaster movies. It's basically a rehash of Jurassic Park, and I really love Jurassic Park, except it's Jurassic Park with a volcano. And at the centre of it is Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs plays the entrepreneur who has decided to build a hotel on the side of a volcano, which he is assured by his scientists will not erupt for at least a 100 years. He has done this in order to give residents the thrill of staying somewhere genuinely dangerous and yet somehow safe. But we know from the outset that nothing's going to be safe. How do we know this? Because Jason Isaacs, wearing a purple suit in a South African accent, says very early on, we're all going to be fine, at which point you know that nobody is going to be fine at all. Now, as you probably know, I'm a huge fan of Jason, and he never gives less than 110% to any performance at all. Apparently, his South African accent in Skyfire was inspired by Elon Musk, because he discovered that Elon Musk was from South Africa. It wasn't till he was halfway through filming that he actually watched a video of Elon Musk and discovered that Elon Musk does not have a South African accent. But that was wasn't going to stop Jason. He'd already committed to it. The film is absolutely all over the place. It makes no sense. It has character developments that are so 
badly drawn, one almost imagines that they're put there for pastiche effect. It is every single disaster movie cliche strung end-to-end in a an extraordinarily spectacular box-ticking exercise. But I would be lying if I didn't tell you that I enjoyed every minute of its utter foolishness. Yes, it's a terrible film. I mean, a quantifiably bad movie, badly written, badly put together, with some spectacular stunts, and, of course, the immaculate Jason Isaacs at the centre of it. But in a rare break from tradition... I really enjoyed watching it, particularly in the middle of uh, the lockdown era when many things were happening that were kind of, you know, making 2020 seem like the grimmest year possible. I just wanted something to switch off my brain. And the sight of Jason Isaacs telling us that everyone was going to be fine while standing on the side of an exploding volcano was exactly the thing I needed. Jurassic Park, Jurassic Spark at number 10. It's Skyfire. Welcome to the most extraordinary and unforgettable experience available on this planet. Tens of thousands of visitors a month. We've only just begun. <laughs> Nature Spectacle presented as entertainment. I mean, only a lunatic would build a world-class resort on a ticking time bomb of molten earth, right? So, on to number nine in my list of my least favourite films of 2020. And if, at number ten, there was a film which is genuinely terrible, but which I genuinely enjoyed, then at number nine, it's quite the opposite. A film which many people consider to be a work of genius, but which I found it very hard to get on with. I'm talking, of course, about Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Now, just to be clear, for the record... I still think that Charlie Kaufman is a genius. He's been involved with some films that I absolutely love, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind being John Malkovich. However, I think that he is a better writer than he is a director, and I think that his writing is at its best when interpreted by somebody else. I wasn't a huge fan of Synecdoche, New York, and I didn't much care for Anomalisa, although I did think there were certain things about Anomalisa that were really remarkable. In the case of I'm Thinking of Ending Things, it's based on a short source novel by Ian Reid, which is effectively Twilight Zone with A-levels. And what happens in the short story is that the film, which is quite clearly from the outset about identity in a Twilight Zone-like way, rushes towards a page-turning, absolutely breathless conclusion, a psycho-splatter chapter that turns it into a full-blooded horror story. Now, in the case of Charlie Kaufman's screen adaptation, there are many things going for it, not least a fantastic central performance by Jesse Buckley, who really manages to breathe human life into what is, in the end, an academic exercise. My big problem with I'm Thinking of Ending Things, however, is exactly that. It is a film that feels like an academic exercise. It is a film that takes a source novel and replaces stalk and slash thrills with sombre song and dance theatrics turning a pot boiler into a chin stroker aimed, as Boris Grishenko might have said, more at the head than the heart. Now, I know that many people love I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and that's perfectly fine. I think there is much to admire in the film, but I think admiring it is the most I can do. I never felt like it was a film that touched me emotionally. I never felt like it was a film that had a heart. I never felt like it was a film that was made by somebody who actually cared about anything other than themselves. For me, the problem with I'm Thinking of Ending Things is that it never really felt like it started. It just sat there, looking at me, smugly, kind of going, you got it? You got it? You got it? 
To which my answer is, yeah. Can you get over it? Excuse me? You don't have to go. I don't have to go where? Forward. People like to think of themselves as points moving through time. But I think it's the opposite. We're stationary. And time passes through us. Blowing like cold wind. Maybe this is how it was always going to end. On to number eight. If you're a regular listener to the Kermode on Film podcast, you'll know that halfway through the year, at the end of June, I kind of do a, a mid-term report. And I did a top of ten best and worst films of the year so far, halfway through the year. And if you were listening back then, you will have heard of what is now number eight in my worst movies of the year. It's a film called The Host, which was released to VOD on April. It's not to be confused with any of the other movies called The Host, of which there are many. There's the Bong Joon-ho film, there's the Stephanie Meyer, Andrew Nichols film and of course recently there is the brilliant film host which was uh, made and came out during lockdown and is a really really remarkable chiller no it's not any of those this is a film the plot of which follows a lovelorn gambling addicted london banker to amsterdam on a fool's errand where he finds himself mixed up with a chinese drug smuggler with some european femme fatales and a whole host of international movie cliches derek jacoby has a blink and you'll miss him wrap around cameo in the film and all i can say is derek what were you thinking one of the interesting things about lockdown is it meant that a bunch of movies that usually would have passed under the critical radar ended up getting held up for critical scrutiny in the absence of other major releases. Certainly when I was doing the Radio 5 live show or the BBC News Channel film review that I do, every week it was a matter of saying, OK, well, what is out this week? How wide can we throw the net? Certainly the net was wide enough to catch the host. And it's probably a film which never really deserved to be looked at very closely. Indeed, Derek Jacobi provides a ripe wraparound. And all I can say is, Derek, what on earth were you thinking? What on earth were you doing? Oh, and we also have an appearance by Dougie Pointer, the uh, floppy head member of McFly. It's a real mess of a movie. In any other year, it would have been completely ignored. But in 2020, it's made it into my list of the top 10 worst films of the year. Congratulations. The host. No, not that one. Lots of people disappear in this city. In fact, they come here to disappear. Isn't it beautiful? My father's wine from the cellar. Holy time. That family is the most powerful family in the city. Stand well away from the house. We were wondering if you had a room we could rent for a few nights. This is your room. Have a lovely stay. Father, we might have a problem. Beware, even those who look innocent can be dangerous. No, no, no! We can choose any room. Even on the wrong path. Sacrifices will be made. 
on to number seven. And at number seven, a film which I'm pretty convinced when it was being made was considered to be a major awards contender by everybody involved. Uh, Ron Howard's Hillbilly Elegy. Now, you may not have seen this because it actually turns out that there isn't that much interest in the film, despite the fact that, as I said, when it was being made, I'm sure it was thought of as a really big, important film. It's adapted from the 2016 memoir by J.D. Vance, which attracted a lot of attention when it came out in 2016. It was considered by news organisations to be um, the kind of book that explained Trump supporters to the rest of the world. Somehow the the so-called liberal elite could read Hillbilly Elegy and understand why it was that Trump had won the election back in 2016. Now, I haven't read the book and I, I can't pass judgment on the book and I'm sure that it must have said some important things in 2016. I have, however, seen the film in 2020 in which, thank heaven, the Trump administration is finally on its way out of the door, albeit kicking and screaming. And having seen Hillbilly Elegy, I can tell you this, it didn't offer me any insight or understanding that I didn't previously have into any subject, except for the fact that possibly actors desperate for awards will often do their worst work. Now, this gives me no pleasure to say at all because the film stars Glenn Close and Amy Adams, both of whom I absolutely love. But take, for example, Glenn Close's performance as the grandma. Now... For this performance, she sports historically accurate and yet somehow still bizarrely caricatured Mrs. Brady, old lady, frizzy hair and glasses and wears a collection of T-shirts that, as I said before, look like they've been pre-owned by Mike Tyson. The performance must be good because it's Glenn Close and she is a really great actor and yet somehow every single note seems false, seems pantomimey, seems somehow put on. As for Amy Adams, who has been brilliant in a range of movies, most notably the incredible Arrival, why is it that Amy Adams just reminds me of Renee Zellweger in Cold Mountain, basically running around shouting, give me an award at the top of her voice? I think the problem comes down to Ron Howard. I think it's that the direction of the film is somehow dramatically inert. Now, Ron Howard has made films that I really love. I'm a huge fan of Splash, obviously, but he's also made some dramatically inert movies. Remember, he is the guy who gave us The Da Vinci Code, a film in which people run from one darkened room to another darkened room, pointing at paintings while explaining the plot to each other. In the case of this, I just felt that I was watching a bunch of actors who had taken a huge amount of acting pills, acting for all they were worth. Whenever I see that, all I think of is Team America, World Police. You can't go up against Alec Baldwin. He's the best actor in the world. Hasta la vista, baby. (laughs) How many times have you seen this? Oh, about a hundred. Everyone in this world is one of three kinds. Good Terminator, a bad Terminator, and neutral. You're a good Terminator. Well, I wasn't always. I had to learn. You could too. I love you. I promise that I'm going to do better. Kimmy, you got a right to your own life. Don't make us your excuse, JD. Family's the only thing that means a goddamn. You learn it. Okay, so we're just outside the top five, number six in my rundown of my top ten worst movies of 2020. And at number six, 
I Am Woman, the Helen Reddy story. Uh, pop biopics are strange things, and I say that as somebody who's just completed a Secrets of Cinema uh, about pop movies. We've got a new series. It starts on January the 11th, BBC4. Thanks so much for asking. Please do tune in. And one of those episodes is about pop movies, pop music in movies, pop stars in movies, pop biopics. We have some great pop biopics, like, for example, the Buddy Holly story. And then at the other end of it, and not making the cut for the Secrets of Cinema programme, we have I Am Woman, the, uh, the Helen Reddy story, which is down there with the 1989 legendary TV movie, The Karen Carpenter Story. It's a real shame because I think the Helen Reddy story is an interesting story, although not as it is told here. Uh, Tilda Cobham Hervey is the Australian single mum who arrives in New York in the mid-60s. She encounters a string of chauvinist caricatures who explain to her that she can't sell any records because of, I don't know, the Beatles. And then she does a whole bunch of stuff in some half-empty dives. Then she meets and marries Jeff who goes almost overnight from being the person who is her greatest supporter to literally snorting cocaine off the carpet while shrieking at her, whilst cutting to things like Ain't No Way to Treat a Lady in order to make sure that we have got all the dramatic beats. There's one brilliant scene in which she's singing I Don't Know How to Love Him through a glass wall to Jeff because she doesn't know how to love him. <laughs> he doesn't know how to treat a lady as he is snorting cocaine off the shagpile carpet after losing all her money. The other thing is that there is a really important part of the Helen Reddy story and the fact that uh, uh, I Am Woman did become an absolute anthem for the women's movement. And somehow... Even a word-for-word -word recreation of Helen Reddy's brief Grammy acceptance speech from 1973 managed to make her punchline about God being a woman fall flat. It's a weird thing. You watch the Helen Reddy story and all you think is, I love Helen Reddy. I love her music. It never fails to move me. Why is it that this film doesn't have an ounce of the charm, the wit, or the sheer power of Helen Reddy's songs? kind of angry. It's man-hating. Jeff, you okay with this? What are you doing? You want to lose your recording contract? This is more than just a song to me. The winner is Helen Reddy. And I would like to thank God because she makes everything possible. I am strong. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So we're into the top five and at number five in my uh, list of the worst films released in the UK in 2020, A Rainy Day in New York. The film which Woody Allen made, I think, shot it back in 2017. I think it was finished in 2018. Then, of course, it was dropped by Amazon, who had financed it, but then decided that they didn't want anything to do with it because of all the negative publicity around what Allen called, quote, a 25-year-old baseless allegation, which nonetheless caused several members of the cast to to apologise for working with him, including uh, Timothée Chalamet, the lead in the film, who has yet to apologise for being quite so bad in A Rainy Day in New York. Now, admittedly, he is saddled with a terrible script. He plays uh, Gatsby Wells. That's right, Gatsby Wells who's a student at Yardley College, who takes his girlfriend Ashley, played by Elle Fanning, to New York for the weekend. He wants to show her the site. She has to interview a filmmaker. The interview goes on. The two get separated. They each have their own individual plot wandering through New York. Yadda, yadda, yadda. We've seen all this done so many times before, but just so much better. It's a really bad movie. It's badly written. It's shonkily played. It's directed with no charm or wit whatsoever. There is a movie within a movie which seems to have been made by somebody who has never been on a movie set in their life, which is extraordinary, because I think this is like nearly Woody Allen's 50th film. It's incredible to think that this is by the same person who made Annie Hall all those years ago. But at the centre of it is the, the worst Timothée Chalamet performance I can remember. Now... I think that Timothée Chalamet has done some good work. I think he has some good performances in him. But let's be honest, he doesn't have much range. But given the role of Gatsby Wells, he excels himself in the terrible movie performance stakes. It is really one of the worst performances of the year, or indeed of any year. So, at number five in my list of the worst films of 2020... Rainy Day in New York, starring Timothy Chalamet. She's apparently onto a very big story. She takes her job very seriously. I shouldn't imbibe so copiously. I become passionate, aggressive, <laughs> absurd. I just... <laughs> hey, Ashley. I can't talk to you right now. What could possibly be so secretive about that? Unless there's some funny business going on. Unless there's some funny business going on. This is real life. Real life is fine for people who can't do any better. It's supposed to be one tiny little lousy hour interview. Instead, we lost the whole weekend. I'm on to a real story here. Take off your wing, Tyler. I can't. I have no clothes underneath. So, on to number four. And at number four, a film which I have to confess I had completely forgotten about until I went back through my notes of movies that I had watched this year and remembered having watched it and remembered just how bad it was. At number four, Blumhouse Fantasy Island. Um, did anyone want or need or request a prequel to the TV series from all those years ago as reimagined by Blumhouse as a kind of horror comedy mishmash? I mean, I certainly didn't. Michael Peña is the guy runs a mysterious island where fantasies come true but in this world fantasies can be nightmares be careful what you wish for 
I mean, financially, they got what they wished for. I think the film cost something like $7 million. It took over 40 and it was worth it, which is great. So at least something good came out of it, because on every other level, it's absolutely catastrophic. I honestly watched it, not knowing whether I was supposed to laugh at the funny bits or scream at the screamy bits. I certainly wasn't meant to fall asleep, and I really had to stop myself from doing so. Again, it's one of those... How did... Sorry, what? Did, this... Get, what? It, where at what meeting did this film happen i spent most of the film trying to figure out why it existed and then the rest of the film wishing that it didn't at number four fantasy island where your wishes come true and my wish did when this ended how the island does what it does is a mystery it brought her back to life so, what's your fantasy? Revenge on a childhood bully. The most popular girl in school was my tormentor. Let's have some fun. Oh my god, that's really her. This is not what I meant! The island is twisting our fantasies. We were brought here to be a part of something else. Once a fantasy begins, you must see it through. Into the top three, and at number three in my list of the worst movies of 2020, Honest Thief, a preposterously silly offering starring Liam Neeson, who surely has better things to do than waste his time with this kind of post-taken tosh. I don't know whether you saw Ordinary Love, but if you did, it's it's a great film with great performances by Leslie Manville and Liam Neeson, reminding us that he can be a great actor. Here, however, he's back in slumming mode. He plays Tom, who's a bank robber whose nickname is, get this, the In-N-Out Bandit. Well, he wants out because he's fallen in love with Ali, so he decides to put his life of crime behind him and go straight. But in order to do this, he wants to turn himself into the FBI, serve his time, and then come out with a clean rap sheet. However... They double-cross him. Now he has murder on his rap sheet. So what does he do? Well, he has to do the usual thing of uh, running around, chasing people, punching people, shooting at people, threatening people on the phone, blowing up people's houses in order to prove that he's a really nice, honest guy who should just be left alone to live a quiet life. The film is directed in utterly perfunctory fashion by Mark Williams, and it is played by Liam Neeson with the air of a man just sitting there going, have I been paid yet? Have I, am I, how much am I being paid? Has the paycheck arrived? Amazingly, the film managed to get a theatrical release where it did quite well, although that was kind of in 2020, in a year in which basically anything that managed to make it up on the big screen looked like something of a treat. But whereas Unhinged, the Russell Crowe actioner, that I kind of really enjoyed it, it was stupid, but I was like, hey, it's fine, I'm sitting in a cinema watching Russell Crowe chasing people around with a truck, and I'm in a cinema. In the case of Honest Thief, it was, really? Liam? Again? Please no. Getting stolen property for a personal retirement funds. If they are willing to kill another agent, what exactly? What are they capable of doing to you and me? My girlfriend. She had nothing to do with this. I'm coming for you. He's former marine. Demolitions expert. I have to finish this. Well, we're getting very near the top spot, and at number two, a film I really hate it. 
The Ringmaster, a pitiful slice of Danish torture porn that makes Eli Roth's hostile movies look like Alfred Hitchcock at his most subtle and inventive. The film is apparently adapted from a novel by Steen Langstrop, Finale, um, but it is derivative bilge of the highest order. Two women working at a gas station, some guys come in, start harassing them, they get kidnapped, they get taken to a torture dungeon where they are tortured and subjected to uh, often sexually orientated indignities in front of an audience both real and virtual. And all this is orchestrated by the titular Ringmaster, a character who is, as I said at the time, less scary than the bogeyman and less funny than the funny man. Genuinely a postulant cocktail of just awful nonsense. This has kind of sub-New York Ripper-style sexualized violence, boringly old-hat, dark-web paranoia, seen-it-all-before, crass theatrical contrivance. A film that makes you think, sorry, didn't we do all this decades ago, and didn't everyone grow out of this kind of really nasty, sleazy, cheap, unpleasant, misogynistic claptrap some years ago? It really was a film that genuinely made me feel depressed about the state of modern horror. Not least because it reflects a part of modern horror that I thought we'd all got through. The film was available when it came out in DVD, on VOD and in cinemas. And, as I said at the time of its release, I advise you to avoid it in each and every one of those formats. The Ringmaster, number two in my list of the worst films released in 2020. A genuinely hateful piece of crap. What is your name? <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce our star for the evening. Tonight is a very violent show. Let's see how we can make this escalate. The most important thing in showbiz is getting your name in the spotlight. Now, considering how much I utterly despise The Ringmaster, you may find yourself asking, well, why isn't that number one in your list of the worst films of 2020? The reason is this. The Ringmaster is a cheap, nasty piece of trash. But that's what it is. But the film at the number one spot had the potential to be so much more. It has a star-studded cast, which includes the voices of Rami Malek, Emma Thompson, Tom Holland, uh, Kamal Nanjiani, Marianne Cotillard. It has a $175 to $200 million budget. It was made over the course of two or three years with opportunities for reshoots. And it stars, in its central role, Robert Downey Jr. Now, all of these things mean the film had every potential to be really good. It turned out to be really, 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 really bad. One of the main problems is Robert Downey Jr.'s central performance. Now, you'll probably be familiar with this, but Robert Downey Jr. decided that he was going to do his version of Doolittle his way. Obviously, everybody remembers the uh, Rex Harrison version from the late 60s, which ended up costing and losing a load of money despite a big Oscar campaign. And then later on, we've seen people like Eddie Murphy take on the role with much more profitable results. In the case of this, Robert Downey Jr. was inspired by a Welsh neo-pagan physician he had discovered called William Price. 
and he had decided to base his character of Doolittle on this figure, and therefore he was going to do a Welsh accent. Now, as it turns out, he's on screen for a lot of the time alongside Michael Sheen, who is, as I'm sure you know, Welsh. I interviewed Michael Sheen sometime later, and I said to him, what was it like being on set with uh, Robert Downey Jr. doing that Welsh accent? Because you are Welsh. I mean, to my ear, I found it painful. What was it like for you? And Michael Sheen said, well... So the interesting thing was that uh, he really, really dedicated himself to it. So he said, he, you know, obviously because I'm Welsh, he asked me every single question he possibly could about the accent, everything, every detail. How would they say this? How would they do this? He asked me every possible question he could, except for the most important question, which was, should I be doing this in a Welsh accent? And to which the answer was absolutely 100% not. But the worst thing about Doolittle is that the Welsh accent isn't the only problem. The film is directed by Stephen Gagan, who is not known for doing this kind of work. And apparently his first cut of the film, which I think was finished sometime around about 2018, was shown to executives and they considered it to be, quote, not funny or at least not funny enough. So in 2019, they got in a bunch of you know other directors and writers and producers to oversee something like, I think, two or three weeks of reshoots, all incredibly costly. And they produced a version that was apparently funnier funnier than the film that was decided to be not funny in the first place now the other thing about the film is that it looks like every single line of robert downey jr's dialogue has been dubbed which means that the version of his welsh accent that we're hearing is presumably better than the one he did on set when he was standing next to michael sheen who said that he didn't ask the question about whether or not he should do a welsh accent so just to clarify it's a film that cost nearly 200 million dollars took a whole bunch of reshoots, spread out over a couple of years with a whole bunch of stars. And this is the funnier version with the better Welsh accent. Now, that means that somewhere in the world there existed a version of this film with a worse Welsh accent that was even less funny than this is. This is a film, incidentally, in which the comedy highlight, and I use the word advisedly, was a sequence in which Robert Downey Jr. and his Welsh accent pull an entire suit of armour out of the arse of a dragon, followed by a bout of explosive flatulence. Yes, the ringmaster is cheap and nasty. This is expensive and rubbish. And that's how it made it to the number one spot. The worst film of 2020. Doolittle. Or as I call it, Don't Little. What have you found, Doolittle? Ah, oh, quite possibly. The answer to everything. Exposure to toxins. thought it was like this at school. Lean in, lean in. I'm saying something interesting. I am interested. The Queen's symptoms are due to the effect of a rare Sumatran plant known as the nightshade flower. A solar eclipse will occur on the 17th of this very month. If she has not received the antidote by then, she will perish. Is that a turner? Must be. What a fine painting. I say, Doolittle, what is your plan? The plan? Of course, we do need one. Well, Queen's on hope is a cure that's never been tested from a tree that's never been seen on an island that's never been found. Sounds ridiculous, saying it out loud. But regardless of that, we've no choice but to embark on this perilous journey to obtain the fruit of the Eden tree. What? <laughs> Thank you.
So there we go, my list of the top 10 worst films of 2020. Let's just recap. At number 10, Skyfire, which I confess I really enjoyed despite how bad it was. At number 9, I'm thinking of ending things. At number 8, The Host. No, not that one. At number 7, Hillbilly Elegy. Number 6, I Am Woman, The Helen Reddy Story. Number 5, A Rainy Day in New York, Timothée Chalamet. Number 4, Blumhouse's Fantasy Island. Number three, Honest Thief with Liam Neeson. Number two, The Ringmaster. And at number one, still hanging on in there, Doolittle. Now, what did you think? Did that match up with your experiences of the worst films of the year? Perhaps you saw things that were even worse than that, or perhaps there are some films in there that you love. I'm sure there are some great defenders out there of I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Let me know what you thought. Give me your list of the worst films you've seen this year. Also, do have a listen to the previous podcast, which was my list of the best films of 2020, because as I said before, despite the fact that 2020 turned out to be a very, very bad year for cinema, there were also some very, very good movies that were released thanks ever so much for listening if you've enjoyed it remember to subscribe tell your friends keep watching the skies and stay safe imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.